Amen. So we're back here in the cave of Adullam, looking together at Psalm 57. And with David's words in verse 7, after he has gone through the challenge in verse 6, telling us about the danger that he's facing from Saul. He begins to speak about his heart. He says, my heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. Now the heart, in terms of anatomy, is an organ in your body. And it weighs about 10 to 12 ounces. It weights about one third of 1% of your body's weight. So it is very insignificant in terms of its actual mass. Yet, it pumps through itself 45 pounds of blood per minute. It's getting graphic, isn't it? I hope your blood pressure is not getting raised too much by talking about this. But your heart pumps 45 pounds of blood per minute, 2,700 pounds per hour, and 32.4 tons of blood per day. Thank you. If you can imagine that. Thanks, guys. It's a muscle in your body that never rests, apart from between beats. Every 30 seconds, all the blood in your body passes through your heart. Every 30 seconds, you imagine that. This is wild. It has a great, sorry, it has a grip greater than your fist. The two ventricles of your heart hold an average of 10 ounces of blood, which is pumped out at each beat. What a miracle this little organ truly is. It does about one-fifth of the mechanical work of the body and exerts enough energy each hour to lift its own weight 13,000 feet into the air. To send the blood as far away as one's two feet, the heart must overcome a resistance of 12,600 pounds. And the word heart, lev in Hebrew, is mentioned roughly a thousand times. A thousand times in your Bible, the heart is mentioned, whereas the mind and thought are only mentioned about 275 times. Now, while that's true, we shouldn't read into that that God is not concerned with the mind. We shouldn't think that merely because the word mind only appears a quarter of the time that the word heart appears, that God is unconcerned with thinking and your brain, but is only merely concerned with your feelings. I think we're very influenced in this day and age by post-enlightenment thinking, in a kind of Greco-Roman way of thinking about the heart, and that's not the way that the writers of the Bible thought about the word heart. I always used to think you know, when people would say, hey, listen, this is on my heart. You know, that kind of an expression. This is on my heart. This is how my heart feels. I would feel kind of icky because I would think what they were thinking and talking about was feelings. Oh, you mean your feelings. But that's not the way that the Hebrews used the word heart. Of course, it could re refer to the organ. But more often than not in your Bible, it refers... Oh, it's frozen again. I'm sorry. Somebody could just click the screen on. Thank you. It refers to your inner man. 
to your mind, to your will, to your understanding. The word there is lev. Inner man, mind, will, heart. So there's no distinction in Hebrew thinking between the mind and the heart. They're one and the same thing. The way that you see the world, the way that you think, is part of the heart in Hebrew thought. The bottom line is, what I'm trying to say, is that just as your organ, the heart, just as the heart in your body is utterly essential to the health of your body, so too is your lev, your cardia in Greek, your heart, your inner man, absolutely essential to your spiritual well-being. Think about modern bodybuilders for a moment. Modern bodybuilders. They push their physical body to the absolute limit in order to produce extraordinary levels of muscle mass, don't they? And in this day and age, in order to reach the very top of their game, competitive bodybuilders will use performance-enhancing drugs to give them an edge, to help them hold on to more muscle fibres. But that comes at a cost. It comes at a great cost. A frighteningly high percentage of professional bodybuilders have died young from heart attacks. Why? Because the heart's also a muscle. And when you take drugs that build muscle, it builds the heart to a place where it is not in a healthy state. So despite looking like they're in physical peak condition, bodybuilders are actually chronically unhealthy because they're putting a strain on the most important organ in their whole body. So your health, physical health, really is linked inextricably to the condition of your heart. And the same is true in terms of your soul, your spiritual health. Your health in terms of your position before God is inextricably linked to the condition of your heart. And though many like to project an image of confidence and strength and prowess out into the world, just like a bodybuilder, in fact, they're very chronically unhealthy inside. And eventually that sickness that happens inside gets the better of them. The health of your inner man, the health of your heart, really does determine how weak or strong you truly are in life. If we think for a moment about physical bodies, if you put two people in a room together, one of them has a weak heart and the other has a healthy heart, to look at them, you might not be able to tell with the naked eye which is healthy and which is not. They may have the same kind of body shape and form, but when you get them to race one another, you'll quickly find out whose heart is healthy and whose isn't. What I'm trying to say using that physical analogy is that the health of your heart is only revealed in testing. It's only revealed in trials. Now David's testing in the cave of Adullam when he's running and hiding from Saul that test revealed the condition of his heart. He found in the moment of trial that his heart was actually steadfast. It was fixed. It was established. It was prepared. 
for the trial that he was in. What I'm trying to say is that your trials are sent to reveal the condition of your heart, of your inner man. Trials introduce you to yourself. Trials introduce you to yourself. Proverbs 27, 19 says, as water, as in water rather, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. You are your heart. You are your inner man. You are the person that shows up when things don't go your way. I'm sorry to tell you, that's who you really are. It's that person that shows up when you're stuck in traffic or when you don't get the promotion that you were going for or when you're inconvenienced in a minor way. Somebody pushes in front of you in the queue at Mackey's. That's you. That person that shows up there is you. And it's a sobering thought because I actually don't always appreciate the guy who shows up when inconveniences happen to me. <laughs> He's sort of short on patience and he's prone to throw little mini hissy fits. <laughs> but thanks be to God that those moments are actually sent to me and they're sent to you by God to bring you face to face with yourself. To bring you face to face with your weaknesses. To destroy pride in you. Because it's only then that we can turn and look to God for healing. So we must give God thanks for those difficulties and trials, especially the minor annoying ones, especially those little ones, because I tell you what, Christians, and myself included, more often than not, we stumble, we stumble more when confronted with little inconveniences and difficulties than we do when we're presented with big ones. Because we think when there's a big trial that comes along, a serious trial, we know everyone's watching us. We know all the attention of our friends and family is upon us. And so in a sense, we gird ourselves up and we go, I've got to deal with this and I know I need to do this in the right way. So there's almost a preparedness in our behaviour because we are concerned that others can see us. But when those little inconveniences happen, you know the kind that I'm talking about. When you stub your toe, when you drop something, those little ones bring out the worst because we know no one's watching me right now. And what is in us comes out before we've even had a chance to think about it. Isn't that true? That person is you. That's the condition of your heart being revealed by God. Now, why does he do this? I believe that God has purposes in letting us get annoyed, in allowing us to get frustrated, in allowing us sometimes a measure of suffering in our lives. I believe that's what Paul's talking about in Romans 5 when he says, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So what do sufferings produce in you? They produce endurance. How many of us could use a little bit more endurance in life? That's what God's building in you when he allows you to go through suffering. Endurance. Secondly, he wants us to have character. That's what's happening when he allows these difficult things to happen in your life. He's trying to build 
character in you. And thirdly, that character is going to give way at some point to hope. To hope. We're supposed to be a people of hope, aren't we? That's why this church is called Hope City Church. We want to lean into the fact that God has made us and created us to be a people who are leaning into the future, leaning into the future with a confident expectancy of good things. That's what hope is. God wants us to have hope. Paul says, hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. So suffering reveals your heart and your heart reveals your true identity. There's never been a time on planet Earth at which people have been more capable of hiding their true self from public view. It's a strange thing because we're able more than ever to communicate with more people than ever. But there are more and more tricks that we can employ through technology to try and mask our true self. Social media, of course, tempts us to turn ourselves into products. Products for people to consume. And so we'll put on our social media feed the things that our consumers want to see. Do we ever post things on social media about when we swore in the morning, first thing, when we stubbed our toe? This morning I said this word because I hit my head on the doorframe. I've never seen any Christians doing that. It's funny, isn't it, that? But we've gotten used to presenting ourselves as a kind of product to the world to be consumed. But that's not real life, is it? It's not real life. And very often, people can get tricked into believing that they really are the version of themselves that they project on social media. That really is me. And so when they're confronted with evidence that maybe it's not entirely true, they get very angry. And they find other ways to mask those truths. But let me tell you, the Bible is gritty. The Bible is real. God's word is real, isn't it? And I remember there's a lawyer, a guy called Philip Marrow from the early 1800s in, in the United States. And he said, listen, the best mirror you'll ever find that's going to reveal you to yourself like no other is the word of God. Louis XIV covered his entire palace wall to wall with mirrors, beautiful mirrors, made on the islands of Murano. But those mirrors are nothing when compared with the word of God, which conceals, sorry, which reveals our inner most desires to the division of spirit and of soul. Your heart will always reveal who you really are. It will always remind you of how far you've come with God and also of how far you've got to go. Isn't that true? There are moments when tests come and God's actually doing it to show you, hey, Look how differently you're responding to this trial than you would have done 10 years ago. Sometimes it's very encouraging. God wants to show you, wow, you've come so far. At other times, trials come, challenges come, and it reminds us, I've still got a way to go. That's why God does it. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep 
your heart with all vigilance. Some translations say all diligence. For from it flow the springs of life. Charles Spurgeon famously said that your heart is a reservoir. Imagine that inside of you is this deep, wide pool of water. And that all of your strength in life and all of your desires, your needs, your hopes, your dreams flow out from this one reservoir inside of you. That's a picture of what your heart really is. It's the source of your life. And so we're encouraged by Scripture to keep it diligently, just as if it was the very water that we were drinking from. We want to check what's going into it. We want to test the purity of what's coming out of it. Because ultimately those who are around you, your family, your friends, your church, they're going to be drinking from that source of water. That's going to be what they're nourished by in your life. And do I want my kids to have the best possible water coming from my life? Yes, I do. I I want them to be nourished by what's coming from me. So I want to be diligent about what I'm allowing inside of my heart. One way to test, you know, of course, with a literal reservoir, we can go and we can perform a, a water purity test, can't we? We can see what's going on in that water. We can do a pH level test to find out how acidic it is. We can test for any uh, microbiomes in there, what's going on, if, there are Ill, you know, if there's any kind of particles in there that are unhealthy. But how can we test for the health of our inner man? How can we actually run a little scientific test to find out, actually, is the reservoir in my heart in a good place? Well, I think that 2 Corinthians 10 tells us one way of doing that. One way to test how healthy that reservoir is, is to do something what Paul calls taking every thought captive. So if it's true, and the Hebrews were right in calling the mind a part of your heart, then your thoughts are actually being dictated by the condition of your heart. And so what Paul's saying is, listen, when a thought pops up in your head, actually capture it. Take it captive, consider it, and ask yourself, is this a thought that is obedient to Christ? Is this a thought that is God-exalting, or is this a different kind of thought? Taking an inventory of what's going on in the head is a good way to find out what the condition of the heart is. It can be quite alarming to do that sometimes, can't it? Because thoughts can crop up in our minds and they can have a number of different origins, I believe. They come from the heart, yes. But sometimes if you've read the screw tape letters by C.S. Lewis, I think it's a fantastic analogy sometimes, is that certain thoughts can be pushed to our attention, can't they? Over and above others. There could be any number of reasons for that. And so we're encouraged to take every thought captive. Now David's test in the cave of Adullam revealed the condition of his heart. It showed him that his heart was 
steadfast, another word would be rooted, or established, fixed. And so, what did David mean that he had a fixed heart? What was it for David to have a steadfast heart? Well, our best way of finding out what he meant is to look at some other examples of where David used that same phrase. He writes of his steadfast heart in Psalm 112, verse 7, another place. And he says this, He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm. Same word, steadfast. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. So what it means for you to have a steadfast heart is that you are not afraid of bad news. You're not afraid of ill reports because you're trusting in the Lord. So steadfastness in the inner man brings with it a kind of fearlessness, a kind of confidence. We read about this kind of a condition of heart in the New Testament, don't we, in in the book of Acts. In Acts 16, there's a story about Paul and Silas. Paul and Silas get into trouble. And some people come along and they, they beat them. They beat them, they attack them. And they drag them into the marketplace and they accuse them. And in fact, they accuse them and they are given many blows with rods. They're beaten and then they're thrown into prison and they have their feet fastened in the stocks. So, can you imagine what state they would have been in? They've been beaten, they've been hit with rods, and now here they are with their feet fastened up in stocks in a dungeon. But in verse 25 of chapter 16 of Acts, it says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing songs, singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. It's a New Testament example of what the steadfast heart looks like. It's fearless. And as David said, he said, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. There's an outflow that comes from somebody who has a steadfast heart. And that outflow is praise. It's worship. I love what Alexander McLaren had to say about the steadfast heart. What power can steady that fluttering, wayward, agitated thing, a human heart? The way to keep light articles fixed on a deck amidst rolling seas and howling winds is to lash them to something fixed. And the way to steady a heart is to bind it to God. Built into the rock, the building partakes of the steadfastness of its foundation. Knit to God, a heart is firm. So if you want to have a a steadfast heart, it's a heart that is rooted in God. It's a heart that is fixed to God, clinging to God. That's what a steadfast heart is. Now, two signs that maybe your heart is needing some attention today. It's like a little heart MOT that we're going to do. Two signs that maybe your heart needs attention is revealed by the opposite of what David wrote sorry, in Psalm 112. If a steadfast heart is revealed by a fearlessness, then 
a, a heart that is shaken, that is loose, will know that we have a heart that is not steadfast by the fact that we are worrying, constant worrying about the future. Now these signs are not being told to you this morning so that you will feel condemned. I want to say that really clearly because God does not condemn us, does he? God has not come to condemn, but these are signs that you can check on yourself so that you could come to God this morning and ask him for help and ask him to heal you and help you to bind yourself and knit yourself once again to him. So one sign that your heart is not in a good place is that you will be constantly worrying about the future. Worrying about evil reports. What's coming next? Oh no, but what about tomorrow? You know the kind of person that even when they've had a good day and you say to them, hey, that was a good day, they'll tell you something negative about tomorrow. <laughs> well, like Puddleglum from Narnia. The Puddleglum heart wants to always add a negative when there's a positive. That, that might be a symptom of an unstable heart that needs God's attention. A second symptom would be that you feel you have very little to be thankful for. Why do I say that? Well, if the natural outflow of a steadfast heart is praise, then the natural outflow of an unsteady heart will be ingratitude. Because praise flows from a desire to give thanks, doesn't it? A desire to give thanks to God for the things that we have. So an unstable heart will be filled up with worry, and it will feel like it has little to give thanks for. Now I'm sure each of you have been in moments where you felt that. You've had to really stir up gratitude in your heart. Maybe you've even had to sit down and write certain things that you, you can be grateful for. And actually, I'd encourage you to do that. If, if you're today in a place where you're thinking, oh, I just don't know what I've got to be thankful for in life right now. So hard, there's lots going on. I, feel, I just feel like everything's too much. A good start would be to just sit down in the evening and just write down three things. Three simple things that you could be thankful for. Even if it's just a roof over your head. Food in your belly. Whatever they might be. Three concrete things that you can give God thanks for is a good place to start. David's heart was steadfast. David's heart was fixed. It was prepared. And from that cave of Adullam, he sang, he worshipped. He turned that dank cave into a cathedral. Now here's what you've got to hope for if you will seek after a steadfast heart and if you will help, sorry, if you will open up your heart to God and say, Lord, I want that. I, I, I recognise today that, you know what, there's some stuff in my heart that needs dealing with. I want to have that same heart of David. I want to have the heart of Jesus, ultimately, who, as we read a few weeks ago, sang hymns before going out to the Garden of Gethsemane where he was going to be betrayed by his friends. <laughs> Jesus sang hymns. We want that steadfast heart. And this is what it will look like. A steadfast heart will praise God gladly. Praise God gladly. Gladly. There will be a gratitude. 
for even the smallest things. I think it was Spurgeon again who said, you know, many are glorying in the accomplishments of their work or in the accomplishments of their ministry, and here I am, humbled in the dust, wondering that I'm saved at all. That's what I'm talking about. It's that attitude of gratitude, that thankfulness for even the smallest graces that God has given. So a steadfast heart will praise God gladly. They don't need to be convinced. They are glad to come and praise God. Secondly, a steadfast heart will sing. Will sing. Now you may not have the best voice, right? But a steadfast heart is going to sing to God. What does that mean? It means it's going to praise God openly. A steadfast heart's not going to be worried about who can hear me and am I hitting that C sharp correctly or you know, worried about what people might think if they know that you're a Christian. Uh, somebody with steadfast heart is able to praise God openly. They're not worried about how that might look to others. And thirdly, somebody who has a steadfast heart isn't needing to praise God out of some kind of duty. They're not doing it as some kind of performance, like a dry offering brought before God out of perfunction. But there's somebody who is praising God from a place of overflow. They're literally so full up with the promises of God and glorying in who he is that the natural outflow of their life is, oh my gosh, I want to praise God. I want to give him thanks today. What else could I do? A natural outflow of a steadfast heart will be overflow. As Jesus said in John 4, my father is seeking worshippers who will worship him in what? In spirit, that is, with their whole being and truth. How many of you would like to have more of a steadfast heart today? I would. I would. This is something we can look to God for. And I, and I want to just seriously say as we close now that there are things that we can look to God for this morning. There are things that we can ask of him this morning. Because there are certain conditions that if we allow them to keep going on inside of us in our internal life they will contribute to an unhealthy heart they will contribute to a spoiled reservoir things like unforgiveness things like pain deep wounds relational wounds if we allow those things to go on unchecked in our hearts. Eventually, they do spoil the waters of our heart and others begin to taste of it. People begin to notice a certain bitterness or a sarcasm that's not funny, <laughs> but it's kind of broken. You know the type I'm meaning? Some sarcasm's funny, I think. But anyway, that's just me. But they'll notice something's off. And what I'm saying is that maybe some of you this morning just need a moment with the Lord to just say, Father, is there an unforgiveness inside of me? Or is there a deep wound that really does need attending to? Or maybe there is a worry and a fear. Perhaps there's a, a sense that you feel you've been let down by God. Life didn't turn out as you'd hoped it would. 
and you're now living a life that you never prepared for. Sometimes when that happens to somebody and they go through trauma or loss, there can be a mistrust that breeds inside of the heart and we begin to worry, is God for me after all? I'm not sure. And if we let that go and check for a long time, the waters of our heart can be polluted. I'll just finish with the story from the waters of Mara. The waters of Mara. These are waters that the Israelites encountered just three days after they crossed the Red Sea. And they were thirsty, desperately thirsty and tired, and they came upon these waters in the wilderness. And they tried to drink from these waters, but they were bitter. They were bitter. They couldn't be drunk. And what God commanded Moses to do was to cast a tree. He said, cast that tree into the waters and the bitter will become sweet. Spurgeon used this as an illustration of the cross of Christ at Calvary. That old rugged cross being cast into the bitter waters of our hearts. At the end of the day, no matter how much good practice you put into your life, no matter how much positive meditation, no matter how much positive declarations you perform, nothing will purify those inner waters other than the cross of Christ. Come to the cross this morning. Come to the cross. Come to God and ask for mercy and his forgiveness and his grace. And those bitter waters will become sweet. Let's stand, shall we? I'm going to invite the worship team to come.